Welcome to the Highlands Current Podcast. I'm Chip Rowe, the editor of The Current. In each episode, our reporters will take you behind the scenes as they speak with residents of the Highlands about their interests, passions, and adventures. For this episode, as part of our series on the Black History of the Highlands, I spoke with Michael Groth, a history professor at Wells College in Aurora, New York, who is the author of a history of enslaved people in early Dutchess County called Slavery and Freedom in the Mid-Hudson Valley. It focuses on the largely overlooked history of slavery in New York and the African-American struggle for freedom, including in our area before the Civil War. Groth is a native of the Hudson Valley and his book was a great introduction to the subject while we were doing our research. Here's Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is a fascinating topic. And what struck me was many people don't seem to realize that there was slavery in New York at all. And yet it was here for 200 years. And especially in our area in Dutchess County, Putnam County, which was part of Dutchess. Is that something you encounter with students or other people when this topic comes up that they're like, what? There was slavery in New York state? I don't get it. The answer is yes. I mean, I, I still encounter that, you know, maybe a little bit less, particularly high school students today, maybe are getting a little bit of that before they come to college. But sure, you're right. I mean, when it comes to the popular memory of slavery and race, people immediately think of the pre-Civil War antebellum South without any appreciation for the, as you suggested, I mean, the very long heritage and history of slavery you know, in the North. And I, I think it's useful for uh, people to, certainly historians and students of history, to sort of like zoom out their focus, so to speak, and, and look at the bigger picture, you know, both, both chronologically across time and also across space. Because if, if you really want to zoom out really far and, and look at all of human history, yeah, <laughs> so we're talking about a long period of time, you actually realize that in some form or another, bound labor, you know, servitude, slavery, serfdom was the norm for most of the human experience. And, you know, what we know today is free wage labor. You know, what we know today is democracy. I mean, these are really new developments in, in human history. So when you take that really big picture and you realize that you know, in, in 1600 and 1700 and 1800, you know, most of the world is still part of that experience where there are really glaring inequalities of, you know, race and political status. And certainly, you know, <laughs> women and children don't have any political status. This is not very long ago. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of the historical societies and historic Hudson Valley and Boscobel here yep. have been starting to reassess the role of Black people in their early histories. And your book, of course, and several other books have been out in the last 10 years or so. There seems to be, like as you said, more knowledge that the fact there was slavery here and look and the contributions of those slaves to the economy that made a lot of people rich. Yeah in early Dutchess history, early New York state history. What prompted the book? What got you interested in the topic? Probably a few different things. I have always been passionate, interested in, in history, 
And, and certainly the American experience, when we think about it, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more fascinating than, than the central paradox of slavery and freedom. You know, how, how can a nation so committed to the ideals of democracy and equality also be the largest slaveholding society in the Americas come the, the mid-19th century? So, so I've always been fascinated by that central paradox and that, that tension there. Certainly, I mean, the freedom struggle is as dramatic a story as any that can be told. I mean, whether we talk about the first moves to challenge slavery during the revolutionary era, the founding era, whether we talk about the anti-slavery abolitionist movement before the Civil War, whether we talk about notable figures like Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth or, you know, local people, like I talk about in my book, like this Barber in Poughkeepsie, Uriah Boston, and then, of course, the Civil War itself. I mean, you know, not, nothing could be more dramatic uh, and more powerful a story. And as, as a student myself, as an undergraduate student, uh, I actually started off at, at uh, Duchess, at, at Duchess Community College, transferred up to Williams College you know, up in the Berkshires and I had great faculty up there, uh, one professor of Southern history that who really turned me on to these issues of slavery and race and democracy. But as I went on into graduate school, I wanted to do more. I mean, at that point in time, there was a growing awareness of the Northern dimension. And I said to myself, you know what? I, I'm from the Hudson Valley. I know New York. I know there is some of this history here. So all of these things just came together. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, what was interesting in the book when you talked about during the revolution that a lot of the black slaves were agonizing over what to do. Yeah. Do you head to New York City? Do you go to Canada? Or do you buy into this idea that all men are created equal and that's yeah. going to, the whole society is going to change once they beat the British? that's always been a fascinating mm. aspect of it. They had to decide. And I think you, you said that most of them took a wait and see attitude. They were gonna yeah. kind of <laughs> see what happened. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the only ones who really got freed were the ones who made it to New York City and were sent on boats, I right. guess, or they, you know, to Canada as part of the book of Negroes, I think it was called. Yes, or, that's what it was called. Yeah, yep. so that was interesting. Though you looked, the calculation was to go to the British ended up being the, the right one as opposed yep. to the people who stayed were still slaves for another 50 years. What struck me too was just having done my own research, I started with the books such as, such as Slavery and Freedom in the Mid-Hudson Valley, which is yours, and struck me that it seemed like it was such a challenge to write in that you're dealing largely with two things. One is statistics, how many slaves, census figures, because we have no, there didn't seem to be any really good sources for the daily life of a black person in Dutchess County, you know, at that time. So you end up kind of telling the story through the white people who owned them, you right, know. Right. I wonder if that was a challenge how you approach that and what resources were most valuable to try to paint a picture, I guess, of what daily life was like. Yeah. I mean, th that certainly was a challenge. Uh, and I knew that, you know, by, by looking at Hudson Valley, looking at a rural area, an area that had a much smaller population, 
you know, I, I was not necessarily going to find the the archival materials and other records that you might find, you know, down in the city or in Philadelphia or Boston, where we have a sizable, obviously a more sizable population, but also community institutions and, you know, that, that left a trail, so to speak. It, it was a challenge. And, and I think it still is for anyone trying to, you know, decipher and uncover this history. And of course, there are a lot of historians in, in academia or local historians, local historical organizations, as you well know, who are trying to uncover that. And, you know, I think that ultimately you have to be somewhat imaginative and creative. Obviously, you know, your creative thought has to be grounded in the historic record. But at the same time, history is a discipline that is that is creative and imaginative in a sense. So, you know, when it comes to cryptic references, say, in the legal record or cryptic references in um, what I found at Poughkeepsie, very valuable, the record of the overseers of the poor, mm-hmm. interviewing those who are seeking some sort of relief of some sort, you have to imagine the particular circumstances. What is it about this particular individual who's being punished for a particular crime? Uh, what were the circumstances there? Try to imagine when you're reading a record of a family in the record of the overseers of the poor for Poughkeepsie, what their lived experience was like. You know, when they talk about being unemployed, when they talk about being evicted from, from an apartment or whatever the case may be. So part of it is being imaginative. But although a lot of these records give us a story through, you know, as you said, white eyes, there's still a lot there you can glean about the people themselves. Mm -hmm. And, And this was certainly true when it came to looking at runaway advertisements. And I know there's been a lot of attention to, you know, advertisements for fugitive slaves. Now, what's fascinating about those is they certainly reveal a lot about the individual who's taken out the act, whether we talk about the actual master, the slave owner, and and how they're projecting onto the fugitive, any number of things. But but things like physical descriptions, uh, references to a young woman or a young man's insolent behavior. I mean, these things clearly tell us a lot about the people themselves. You know, among all of the advertisements I was able to go through, I'm fascinated by um, references to, I recall one by a 16-year-old girl, I think, and I believe I mentioned her, and I believe she was Red Hook, who was really, the words escape me, but the description included a reference to this young woman being artful enough to deceive Satan himself. You know, and obviously, you know, so you pause and you think, you know, here we go, a 16-year-old who has the gumption to flee. And, you know, so you immediately have a sense of who that person likely was. Yeah, and I think with the ads, it was interesting. You know, the scars are mentioned, um, missing fingers, whatever, kind of a sign of the brutality that existed. And also that they're always clever. Always the slaves that escaped were clever because otherwise the guy looks, you know, the master looks like a moron that they let this, (laughs) they let him get away. So they're all very cunning and clever and that kind of thing. But yeah, that must've been a tough decision to flee. I mean, you weren't, especially early, 
you wonder if there weren't these support systems. They talk about the Underground Railroad, but I yep. I know a lot of what I read was a lot of the enslaved people didn't even know it existed. You know, you just yep. found out it existed as you kind of went up into Duchess, but they weren't yep. expecting that the churches and so mm -hmm. forth were going to push them north. Yep. So it was uh, quite courageous. Absolutely. And I think if, if you think about the fugitive experience and running away more broadly, you, you tend to see it as part of that interactive master-slave relationship. Certainly, particularly as we get closer to the Civil War, and this was certainly the case during the War for Independence, there, there are men, occasionally a few women, but overwhelmingly young men who are seeking freedom. You know, whether we talk about British lines in New York City during the War for Independence or, you know, as we get closer to the Civil War, the Underground Railroad. But more often than not, I mean, running away is sort of like a tactic in the give and take between master and slaves. It, and we see this actually in the South as well as the North. You know, oftentimes fugitives in the South as well as the North, you know, would escape for a period of time simply because they want some time off or simply because they're, they, they really need to connect with family members, you know, spouses, or to see children that they're separated from. And, and sometimes they're using it as, as a weapon and as a tactic, if you will. Hmm. And they might very well return. And on the one hand, they might risk punishment, but at the same time, they're also making a statement. If you continue to treat me this way, or if you continue to keep me from seeing, you know, my wife or my children, I'm going to do this again. And, mm. and you know, now, obviously, there are very few enslaved people who could have relied on the sincerity and goodwill of, you know, those who, who claim them. But it's still demonstrating agency, you know. Sure. You're still doing something mm -hmm. that even indirectly challenges authority. What brought Black people to Dutchess County specifically? I mean, this was later. The Dutch were here, what, 100 years before Dutchess? Is that right? Where Dutchess was still wilderness kind of until yeah. the turn of the 1800s or so. How did Black people, they were being brought to New York City, obviously. Right. How did they come to Dutchess? Why, why were they brought to Dutchess? Was it just agricultural work? That's basically what they needed? I mean, to a large extent, yes. I mean, it, it, yeah, you're right. I mean, when the Dutch are laying claim to this area, they're primarily focused on the capital. What we know today is the capital region, Fort Orange, and, and the critical point we have there for, for the fur trade. And then, of course, New Amsterdam down in the south. And, and although there are a few small settlements in between, so to speak, you know, Asulpus is one of them on the other side of the river. Settlement of Dutchess, Putnam really doesn't, you're right, doesn't really proceed until the 1700s. And at that point in time, that's when the colonial economy becomes increasingly integrated. Although people are producing largely for local markets, more and more the reach of the wider Atlantic world you know, when we talk about Europe or other colonies are having an impact on economic activity. So that's why the population in, in the middle decades of the 1700s in Dutchess really increases. And also, you know, agriculture, you know, of various sorts increases very significantly. But, you know, as populations grow, the economy also diversifies a bit. 
one of the points I try to make in the book is that more often than not, enslaved people have the same skills and versatility as free people do. That is to say that they're not only, you know, cultivating wheat, but they're also their own carpenters. They're also their own masons. They're also doing metalwork. And and, uh, in some cases, they're engaged in manufacturing and, you know, working in foundries. And of course, as the population grows and there are families, you know, who are seeing increased wealth and status, they're hiring domestics of various sorts. So as the economy grows and it's becoming more and more integrated to the regional economy and then the economy beyond and the population increases, more and more people are being brought, indeed, largely from New York City. You know, one thing that I do point out to to my students when we talk about the history of slavery is the extent to which, and this is somewhat ironic, the extent to which those people of African descent originally are not necessarily African born. Okay. That is to say, you know, and we see this in other parts of the Americas as well. You know, the original early generations, what historians like Ivor Berlin called charter generations of people of African descent who come to the Americas or are brought to the Americas are really multicultural. I mean, they might not be born in Africa. Yes, they might have African descent, but they might not be speaking African languages. They might be speaking Spanish or Portuguese or French because they're born in the Americas or maybe born someplace else in the Atlantic world. So they're the newcomers. They are the ones who arrive originally. As slavery becomes more deeply entrenched, as the system expands, then over the course of time, we have a growing number of portion of those who were enslaved in Africa hmm. who, who are brought to New York. So ironically, in some respects, the black population of the Hudson Valley, like other parts of the Americas, is more African at a later time than it was originally. Oh, interesting. It was notable to me that I think when you think about the economy and, you know, obviously Dutchess County was, or Fishkill, Greater Fishkill, was supplying New York City with a lot of this, you know, food and that kind of thing. But you see that kind of reflected in the fact that most of the slaves in Dutchess were primarily in Fishkill Landing, which is today Beacon. Yep. And Poughkeepsie, I believe, right? And and so it seemed like the it was set up where the stuff was all coming to the river yeah. and being taken from there. So you had many more workers in Fishkill Landing. And that yeah, that was seemed to be borne out by the census numbers and that kind of thing. How how was that different from the South? I mean, my impression was that most of the people in Duchess and the North were they might own a few a handful of slaves. I think in Phillipstown, there was a early settler who had four slaves and that was the most of Phillipstown, you <laughs> yeah, know? So it wasn't, yeah. but was that true in the South that, that there were only plantations or was it also true that most of the people who owned some people in the South also were small farmers with a few slaves or was it totally different environments between the two North and South? You know, in some respects, there are parallels. You're right. And and certainly in the case of New York, and for that matter, other northern colonies, the typical slave owner, if you will, only has, you know, a few enslaved workers. And there are some exceptions, like in Rhode Island, on Long Island, and larger estates, larger manors, you know, in the Hudson Valley. 
but but yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what is it? Three something like three quarters of slave owners in Dutchess County at the time of the first census. So we're get, talking about late 18th century. Have fewer than three, uh, th- or fewer than four, I think it is. You know, just so a handful. Now, having said that, you know, if you look at the the antebellum South several decades later, on the whole. Average holdings are larger, but we see very similar patterns. Hmm. One, one thing that many students are surprised by is the extent to which, and we're talking about the South now, the majority of white Southerners did not own slaves. And, you know, I think that defies a lot of common assumptions. Only about, you know, at the time in the Civil War, only about, you know, a quarter of white Southern households actually include enslaved people. Now, if, if you break down that population, you see a similar pattern in that the overwhelming number of slave owners in the South have 10 or fewer slaves. Hmm. In other words, what it all comes down to is this. I mean, you know, those images we have in our minds of those big, lavish plantations, those, those gorgeous Georgian mansions, with the big trees dripping with the Spanish moss and all yeah, that. The gun with the I, wind is the gun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those are really, really exceptional. Hmm. I mean, those represent, you know, those slave owners represented only a tiny fraction of even the pre-Civil War South's slaveholding population. What happens when, so in 1827, this long <laughs> process of, of freedom which which made me think earlier when we were discussing runaways was you know they started it was notable in the early 19th century the, the initial 1799 you know we're going to free you in 20 years kind of thing you look at that as something you know did that was that designed to discourage runaways and that you give this kind of distant promise of freedom or I'll let you buy your freedom you know yeah you'll never make enough money to do it but that struck me as as psychological in a way, like to try to mm. keep keep the runaways. You'll give them hope that they're going to be freed at some point. So, eighteen twenty seven, you have legal freedom, I guess. How does that change New York or Duchess? Does it happen overnight? Is it the sort of thing where people are still sort of enslaved as low paid workers? Mm. Uh, that that's really a good a good question, and the and the answer is you know pretty pretty complicated. You know, as you point out, I mean the process of emancipation in, in New York, and and this was to one extent or another true in most other northern states, is really drawn out. It's slow and gradual, and there are different pieces of legislation that are passed. But one of the provisions, and you alluded to it, of New York's emancipation laws had to do with the requirement of children born as slaves to continue in servitude. They're not slaves, per se. They are technically, in the eyes of the law, free, but still required to serve. And again, keeping in mind the larger history, you know, servitude or apprenticeship, particularly for young people, had been the norm for, you know, many people in many places. So what that means is between the late 1700s and say about 1830-ish, you've got this peculiar period of time where we do have slavery for some, servitude for some, freedom for others. And oftentimes, and this must have been difficult, 
you might have people within one family who actually have different legal status. So you have this transitional period, which I talk about a bit in the book, and that in and of itself must have been particularly painful. How, how you navigate this. Now, because of changes in the economy, because of political currents, because of an expanding supply of free labor, and also because of what enslaved people or people bound to servants had been doing themselves to make bondage that much more difficult for, for owners, you know, the process is hastened a little bit by 1830, 1840. But what's fascinating about the experience in the North is the extent to which slavery casts a really heavy shadow. In, you know, there are other historians who have really explored this. As, as we started off discussing, I mean, you know, slavery is an institution at this point in the 1800s, they're still centuries old. And it's much more than an economic institution. It, it's interwoven with political institutions. It's part of culture. And what happens then is that, to put it simply, you, you might end slavery, but you don't end the, all the cultural and social baggage that accompanied it. And if anything, what we see in the northern states is that what we would call today racial prejudice or even racism intensifies because you no longer have that system of slavery or servitude to keep people of color in their place. Mm -hmm. so, so in other words, you, know, you come up with other mechanisms if you will, of maintaining that socioeconomic and racial distance. Whether we talk about you know, racist imagery in popular culture, discriminatory uh, legislation, the vast majority of black men in the North uh, do not have access to the ballot and unequal treatment in, in the legal system. So the answer to your question is somewhat complicated. In, mm -hmm. in fact, one of the early questions I posed of myself when I started in this work many years back was, well, gee, what, how does this play out in the Hudson Valley? You know, we don't necessarily have in the Hudson Valley the same institutional supports that people would have had in New York City. What does this mean? I mean, was life so difficult in the Hudson Valley that people just left for New York City? or went elsewhere to find, you know, a larger population with vibrant community institutions. And what I discovered, and of course, this is a big part of the book, is that although certainly some people did migrate to New York City, for the most part, when we take a look at the Hudson Valley, the local population migrated from the countryside to, to villages like Fishkill Landing, like Poughkeepsie, across the river, it's Newburgh. Mm -hmm. And then further north, you know, you've got Kingston in the area around Red Hook and Rhinebeck. And, and it's there where they're developing smaller communities, they're establishing schools, they're, they have connections with the AMEZ congregation down mm -hmm. in the city. And these are really vibrant and active communities. They might be smaller, certainly, but but they, they, they really endured and, and created not only an active community, but a politically conscious one.
I mean, you saw that in some of the uh, abolitionists who came up to Poughkeepsie to speak or yeah. they weren't getting warm welcomes with open arms. Come on in. Uh, even from the ministers, they they didn't. I mean, Duchess struck me as rather conservative, certainly not progressive on the issue. Is that a fair assumption? No, that, that is a fair assumption. And I, I would say, you know, going back to what we were discussing just a short time ago, you know, I think it's a product and a function of this this legacy, this shadow of, of slavery. There is a difference between the Hudson River Valley and other parts of the of the state. I mean, you know, I, I'm now in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region, and this region was a little bit more sympathetic to abolitionism and the other reform movements, you know, the so-called burned over district. But having said that, I mean, even in a somewhat more quote unquote progressive area like upstate New York, there's still hostility. Yeah. In opposition to the anti-slavery message. Is that strictly economic though? Like were was Duchess just more connected to New York City and so our fortunes depended on this slave labor? I think that's part of it. You yeah. know, I think a lot of it has to do with that the, the cultural and historical baggage. I mean that legacy. Certainly there's growing awareness and sensitivity among historians about the, the close ties between Northern, particularly New York City, commercial interests with the plantation South, you know, in the years before the Civil War. So it's, I think all of these things are, are converging to explain that. But again, you know, what strikes me is the extent to which, despite this hostility, People in the Hudson Valley, whether we talk about, you know, the folks in Fishkill Landing in Newburgh or Poughkeepsie, they're still going to anti-slavery meetings. They're still inviting outspoken black abolitionists like Henry Highland Garnett. They're still inviting Frederick Douglass, who comes to Dutchess County several times, especially as we get closer to the Civil War, to speak. So that, that was uplifting and encouraging. Yeah, he came for a victory lap as well after they got the vote. There's a great, I think a Newburgh paper had a long, long detailed account of a speech yeah. that he gave in Newburgh, which was kind of fun because he was, you know, essentially saying, now we got the vote. So let's, what are we going to do with it? Yeah. Was the message. So, yeah. All right. Well, I've kept you very long. I appreciate it. It's a really interesting topic for sure. And, and I think one that most people don't think about it or realize that there wasn't this Mason Dixon line, wasn't the right. <laughs> boundary of slavery. I appreciate it. And thank you for your book is really, uh, really good. Covers a lot of territory, but a good overview of it. So thanks again. Thank you. I I've enjoyed this very much. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Highlands Current Podcast. This episode was produced by Zach Rogers and recorded and edited by Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, leave us a review on your listening app of choice, and consider becoming a member of The Current. The paper and website and this podcast are offered free to the community, paid for with support from our readers and listeners. To join for as little as $24 annually, visit highlandscurrent.org join. That's highlandscurrent.org join. Or catch up anytime on the latest news at highlandscurrent.org or pick up a copy of the print paper every Friday. Thanks again. I'm Chip Rowe, editor of The Current, and we'll see you next time.